This episode contains graphic content that may be alarming to some. Listener discretion is advised. I can walk into any room with a guitar and win the room over, and then I'll get hammered and do something crazy, and everyone hates me, you know? And half the time that would work, but then there was that half. I'm like, God, how many opportunities have I fucked up that I don't remember? My wife set me down at one point. She's like, hey, if you're going to be gone all the time on tour, and then you're going to bring the party home, then why don't you just stay gone? And when she said that to me, that like cut like a knife. This is a show inspired by one of my kids who, for them, making mistakes and facing failure when things aren't predictable can be really tough. But life isn't predictable. If you want to be successful at anything, mistakes and failure, they're just required. You've got to fall down if you want to move ahead. And in today's social media world, we're so good at posting our best angles with the best filters. We're not posting the mistakes we make. We're posting our victories. But that's not real life. Being a Grammy-nominated songwriter, producer, and entrepreneur, I get to hang with some of the most influential, bigger-than-life human beings on the planet. And even when making the biggest hit records, few nail it on the first take. I'm going to try and challenge the stigma of fucking up and explore how even the most successful people face personal and professional moments of doubt and hopefully show all of us that our failures, our more fragile moments, are where greatness is born. I'm your host, Billy Mann, and this is Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Today's guest and I both grew up with an enormous amount of drive and not a lot of money. And what's so interesting about it is that our environments, where we grew up, are vastly, vastly different, like as different as different can be. I grew up in Philly, a city where when I went to sleep at night as a little kid, I went to sleep to the sound of heavy, sighing, septa, buses, sirens, gunshots, people screaming in the streets. And that was the music of my environment as a kid. And Tim Montana, our guest, grew up in remote Montana, which clearly looked different and sounded different. But whereas in Philly, I could get mugged by a person, in Montana, you could get mugged by a mountain lion. I'm really curious to hear about how his Montana upbringing shaped his successes and his failures. And I'm also looking forward to just reflecting on the similarities. Tim Montana, you are a dad of four kids like me, a husband like me, a marksman. I don't know if I could hit the side of a barn with uh, a softball, but that's okay. A grill master, a hot sauce entrepreneur, and of course, a great singer and songwriter. Welcome, Tim Montana, to Yeah, I Fucked That Up. Thank you for having me. I would love to hear a little bit about what life was like growing up off the grid. It was, uh, I tell this story on stage every night. I said, you know, a lot of people are like, oh, you guys going green? Were you saving the earth? And I'm like, no, it's called poverty, but thanks for asking. <laughs> <laughs> Is that everybody that you grew up with was under the same circumstances, kind of off the grid, so to speak? There wasn't a lot of people out there in northern Montana. We were kind of by the Canadian border when we started with this off the grid thing. One of the neighbors, he was a couple mile walk down the creek. His name was Garrett. And uh, he was like a religious, his family was like mm. kind of doomsday preppers. So, and we were to that point to an extent, you know, but it was wild, man. I'd have to get up so early for school, it was pitch blackout, and you'd put a lantern 
in the bathroom. And then when you shut the shower curtain, it was just black. So I'd have to figure out how to like open the curtain a little bit so that the light would come in. So, cause I'd get scared and stuff in the dark. Mm. So we'd get up early morning every day and I had chickens to take care of that were way up on this hill. So I'd have to bring water up there with a little flashlight. And that was the spookiest shit ever. Cause we had mountain lions all the time that were in there. I remember going in in the mornings and sometimes half the chickens were dead and it was not Oof. a pretty sight for a six-year-old kid to be like, oh my God. And I'm like, where's that cat? And I'd like look around like, holy shit. And I'd drop all my stuff and run back <laughs> Wait, down the hill. Wait, you were six? Oh yeah. We moved up there when I was like six years old. And that was your chore? Okay, go up where the bobcats kill the chickens. and <laughs> Yeah, mountain lions. Bobcats are fine. Right. Mountain lions you got a problem with. I just, I can't imagine what goes through your like how fast your heart's going to race as a six-year-old kid. Yeah, and I think about that stuff all the time, and I'm like, my daughter's like, oh, it's the whole uphill both ways to school, and I'm yeah. like, it kind of <laughs> was. Like Some of the chores and daily things I did at a, such a young age blows my mind because I have a hard time doing that stuff today. You know, I learned a great work ethic that I've taken with me into the music business where I just have this theory of no one will outwork me. You can outsing me, you can outplay me, you can out this, you cannot outwork me. It's impossible. What's the first time that you can remember that you got in really big trouble with like your mom? Uh, I had the cuss club. That was a lot of trouble. That former stepdad was like a biker. So he had a lot of rowdy friends around that weren't exactly great people. And I was at St. Matthew's Catholic School. It was kindergarten or first grade. And I started with a group of kids. And I was like, we're going to start the Cuss Club. Mm. And we'd sit under the Jungle Gym monkey bars and be like, shit, damn. And then we had this little circle. We had this secret handshake. And I wore this old Harley Davidson leather cap. And mind you, I'm five or six years old at St. Matthew's Catholic School in Kalispell, Montana. Ringleader of the Cuss Club. And somebody told one of the nuns. I think it was Sister Betty found out. <laughs> And all hell broke loose, and my mom had to come in for a meeting, and she's like, Timmy, are you the leader of the Cuss Club? And I was like, yeah, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> when you started playing guitar, you're sitting with a candle lit in your room playing guitar as a kid, and how did it graduate from that moment to, like, this is where I want to go? Man, I just think it was my escape from all that. It was my nighttime thing, because... I did have electricity when I was a little kid till I was like five. We lived above a pawn shop and I'd go down and watch TV. And then all of a sudden I was like, hey, this is going away. You don't have TV anymore. Here's a little nylon string guitar. But it just became this friend I had, this escape I had. And I remember I'm always like, I don't know if it's like manifested my destiny, but I've always had these, like, I'd close my eyes and play guitar and think about a huge crowd. Even when I was a kid, I remember it. And I was like, I'm going to do this. And that dream has been going on since I was six or seven years old when I'd hear a song on the radio and be able to pick it up. And I'm not like a guy that can sit there and sit with session players and just go crazy. I'm not that guy, but I can figure out a song. When did you start writing songs? It was pretty early, and I think the songwriting comes from I talk to myself a lot. Put a little kid in the woods with no friends. <laughs> I would play different characters where I'd like play Rambo with a stick gun, and then I'd play the other character. And if you walked up to me in the woods when I was like seven or eight years old, you probably thought I was out of my mind because I'd be like, we've got to get to the helicopter. <laughs> I'd do voices, and then I'd run out of this little cave and stuff and I'd find in the woods, and I'd just go out in the middle of nowhere and just set up these little forts, and I would play all the characters. So I found myself always, when I was splitting wood, either making up characters or singing songs 
that I would just make up and rhyming words. And from the youngest age, I was just, my friend was myself. But then we got like real poor and moved into the trailer house. And that's when shit was like real rough. Cause that's when we had an outhouse out back. And I remember digging an outhouse hole and my instructions were to dig it deeper than myself. And then I could come in. And when and you're digging in the Rocky Mountains, there happens to be rocks about half my size that I'd have to like winch out of this hole. And then the groundwater level, I'd be in there up to my knees in water, just throwing this, you know, dirt out. And then we'd winch the outhouse over the top of it. So then you had your toilet. I'm like, how the hell did I do that at that age? Mm. Well, you, but you weren't given a choice, right? It wasn't like you can do that or watch Disney. Right, right. You know, they had a battery hooked up to like a little TV where they occasionally watch the news, but I I hated that step asshole so bad that I was just like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to go inside. And then at some point he realized that, shit, I don't let this kid talk on the phone. I don't let him have friends. And then he's like, but he likes music. So he started taking my guitars away when I was probably 13 years old. He'd be like, hey, you didn't do that job to my liking. So now your guitar's gone for a week. So then that really pissed me off. So I was kind of like, Oh God, that making me mad thinking about it. <laughs> my mom was kind of in on my thing where I negotiated a deal with my teachers to let me play music at school, mm. but I wasn't allowed to have my guitars because the stepdad would catch me with them and take them away and get pissed off. And so we would drop them out the back window of the trailer house into a snowbank, and I'd go create a diversion in the front room because he'd always like check me before I went to school to make sure I didn't have an instrument. And then my mom would have it in the truck and we'd clear and go to school and then I could do it. So then I started doing the talent shows and I ended up winning at the talent show. And that was a problem because now it's in the newspaper. How did I win the talent show if I'm not allowed to have my guitar? (laughs) And that's kind of the first moment where this, I don't know this, I hated this person. So when he would tell me I couldn't do something, I'd push hard to do that thing, right? So I'd be like, you can't do this. And I'd be like, fuck you, I'm doing this. Now I have that drive. And I think that really helped me in the music business is beating the odds. You know, all these record execs that passed on me for 15 years, it would not only piss me off, but it would stoke a fire of like, really? You think I'm no good? You think I'm nothing? Like, watch this shit. I've been up against this my whole life from someone a lot scarier than you people. And I've, you know, found a way to navigate through that. Going from an abusive stepdad who's actually taking your guitar hostage from you, let's jump to years later, you're on a mission with a guitar that now you're in control of that shit and you are trying to build your dreams, at some point, you met David Letterman. Can you just share how that all went down? God, I think it was summer of 2008, and I'd gone to GIT. I'd failed out twice. Or which GIT, just for people that aren't? Guitar Institute Technology in Hollywood, California. So I went from off the grid, Montana, to getting accepted to music school. And my mother thanks God for that every day because I had military recruiters at the house constantly because I wanted to go bad. And she's like, please, Timmy, chase the music thing, chase the music thing. And I sent off an audition tape to Musicians Institute and was accepted. And she said, I prayed every night that you got accepted to that music school because I knew what plan B was. So I went to music school. She was so stoked. But when you unleash a kid that never got to be a kid for most of his life in the woods of Montana on Hollywood, California, it was wild. And 
I made a lot of friends, made a lot of enemies. I never did music theory or music reading, which was part of the curriculum I had to pass. So I just skipped those classes because I was typically hungover. And I failed out the first time, right? Eventually, I met a guy named Johnny Highland, and this will lead to the Letterman thing, who was a legally blind guitar player. My brother's legally blind. He's, my brother has albinism, so white hair. Like I said, my mom was an interpreter for the deaf. My brother's blind, so I spent a lot of time doing, you know, working with the buddy program, which is special needs kids. And I, I found a lot of joy in my life through helping those kids. You know, I just loved every minute of it, you know, and learned to sign. So met Johnny Highland, blind guitar player. And I'm like, who is this dude? And his eyes, I could tell him, like, that guy's legally blind like my brother. And he's a big fella, too. And I watched him play guitar with no distortion pedal, and it changed my life that he could pick that fast with no effects. And I'm like, oh, my God, he is running circles around Van Halen, and there's no distortion. There's no reverb. There's just clean picking. So he said, I live in Nashville, so I ended up moving to Nashville. And I said, Johnny, will you produce a record on me? And I had to like borrow two grand from a buddy and Johnny Highland produced this record with a song about my hometown called Butte America that I didn't know what I was doing. I wrote by myself, but I wanted to pay tribute to the working class people in Butte. So then I'm frying chickens in Nashville. I'm trying to get a job at Tootsie singing, but I got in a fight there and they were impressed with how I fought this dude. So they offered me a bouncer gig and I'm like, all right, I can fight my way on stage quite literally. And ended up starting a Thursday night thing at Tootsie's Orchid Lounge. And somewhere I put together a group of musicians and had to do four-hour cover sets. And I said, all right, let's do this Butte America thing. Let's play this stuff I'm doing with Johnny Highland. Let's go put a tour together. And so I booked a show in my hometown, Butte, Evil Knievel Days. Evil Knievel's from my hometown. Mm. So we had Evil Knievel Days, Livingston, Montana, and Shoto, Montana. And so I made this poster that said, Tim Montana coming home to her. And there were three shows on it. It had me with a guitar with no beard. And I told people, I'm like, this is going to be the tour, man, that defines everything. And everyone's like, yeah, right. So we show up in Montana in like a beat to shit van that literally broke down like three times on the way up. And at some point in Shoto, I had heard that David Letterman lived there. And that's where I started this whole manifesting destiny thing where I'm like, Dave could show up. Dave could love us. Dave could put us on the late show and all my problems will go away. It'll, it'll I'll break overnight. And sure as shit, David Letterman and his fiance walk up to the table and I'm like, Oh my God. And my wife, I was married at that point. We got married at Tootsie's where I worked. Had just had a baby broke his shit. And my wife was up there and Dave comes up to the merch table and just starts chatting and i'm just like there he is and i, I have a picture i have this cut off shirt on because i thought i was a badass and i have like these little skinny arms with my cut off you know shirt and cowboy hat and so in that process my mom loves bragging about oh timmy grew up off the off the grid and in montana and blah 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 blah. And dave was like so fascinated with this he's like no shit he's like well i've got solar panels and you're like were you guys trying to go green and i'm like here's the question again were we trying to go green no <laughs> and uh he introduced his fiance. He said, this is Regina. And I'll never forget this because I almost fainted. My mom said, Regina. And Dave said, no, Regina. And she said, vagina. And I'm like, oh my God, mom, stop talking. <laughs> Thank God Dave's a comedian. And so anyway, I, I said to him too, at some point, I hope to see you, I hope to be on the show one day. And he said, man, I hope that works out. I really do keep chasing it. And I get back to Nashville and the phone doesn't ring. The phone doesn't ring. And I'll never forget this phone call because I was at Guitar Center, right? Mm -hmm. Where all the 
it's the temple of everything but yes everybody's shredding in there and i'm in there trying to buy strings my phone rings and it's a new york number and i answer the phone it's cheryl zellickson the booker for the late show with david letterman and I'm like, holy shit. So I'm walking through Guitar Center. I'm like, fuck you, fuck you. <laughs> My ship is coming, baby. It's time to go. Hall of Fame. Let's rock. And, and uh, it said, Dave wants you to be a personal guest on the show. He's going to fly you up. At that point, I was terrified of airplanes. So I actually drove to New York City and flew the entire band and crew up and uh, went up there, did the late show. It was October of 2008. And I don't have a beard. I have no idea what I'm doing. I had a Broadway band of musicians they actually did a really good job considering i was like 23 at the time and my mom came up and my daughter you know came up as well and it was like such a magical experience but here's the thing before we went we had like the worst credit ever we were completely broke we had an orchard bank credit card with a 300 limit and my wife and i were like we're gonna be rich and famous after this period so we went and bought the nicest steaks at Kroger and shit, and we were just so stoked. We maxed out that $300 credit card, went to New York, played the show. I thought it went great. Came back to Nashville, and the phone didn't ring. Nobody called. Nobody seemed to care except my hometown, and it was like probably it was my most exciting moment, followed by not what I had envisioned afterwards. I thought for mm-hmm. sure if this dude from Montana got a break on the, you know, at the Ed Sullivan Theater in New York City, that things would change overnight. And it didn't. What happened when you got back to Nashville and started to make the rounds? I found that Nashville can be a little unnerving, even when I would pitch songs and go down there. And it's like a different flavor of pain. I don't know how to put it, but it's yeah, like... Yeah, Southern Charm mixed with, oh my God, they hate me. Right. <laughs> Was there any experience you had where you like had a meeting where you got kind of shot down by it after that? The funny story was I met with Broken Bow, John Loba, and Carson over there. And I went in and they had heard some stuff and... As I like started playing, like you're really good, but you're singing about weed and whiskey. They're like, we're not going to touch that. There's absolutely no way. Eight years later, those are the same guys that gave me my my first record deal. Mm. Like times changed, you Mm. know? So I got, and I remember being so disappointed leaving that room and being angry at those guys being like, why did you just waste my time here? If you knew what my songs were about, my lyrical content was about, and they gave me like a hard pass and kind of broke my heart. And I'm like, Jesus, I just, anytime I get a label meeting, it was just a pass. And I'm, I'm not talking one, two, it was like three rounds of just sending these same kind of record executive songs and coming in there and being like, Hey, here's this, this is what I'm doing. And they just passed. Something happens right after you present music to people because it's super personal when you leave the meeting and you get in your car, you you go home, what's going through your mind at that moment, at that age, at that time? That's, that's tough, man. That's a lot of heartbreak stuff. I mean, that's, you know, it's, and for me, I don't know. It just went back to that childhood feeling too, of like just constantly being shit on. And I was just like, ah, but I also had this kind of like, I'm going to try again. You know, I always had that attitude, but I mean, it sucks when you first get that pass, you get so excited, you build yourself up like, oh my God, I'm walking into Universal Records, I'm walking into Warner, I'm walking into BMG, whoever, Sony. I did that at everybody in town multiple times and I get excited and psych myself out and psych myself up and I'd probably talk a million miles an hour in that room and then they'd pass. And sometimes they'd pass in the room, sometimes I'd have to get a hold of them for two weeks via email and get 10 no responses and then one response that was not the response I wanted. And I would just be that guy that would just 
keep going and jabbing. And but I mean, that feeling's terrible. Did you think about giving up? Did you think, you know what? Maybe I'll... the only time I thought about giving up is when I had a major booking agency let me go because that was the one thing where I was like, I tour harder, I drive more, I'll drive, I would drive Work from, harder, right? I'll drive across the country overnight and just drink energy drinks and like get there and give it my all on stage. And I always thought that was the thing that would never go away. And that was God only four or five years ago, probably, that I lost a major. What happened? One of their dudes took me to lunch who was very real with me. And he said, hey, you need to fire us. I'm like, what? And he's like, there are people here that don't see the vision. And they're kind of putting you here and here thinking that you're going to fire us because we're going to give you unrealistic obstacles, which still pisses me off. My wife is pretty mad about that. I'm still pretty irked about that. And I was like, oh, my God. And that moment when I lost that booking deal, like... That was rough, man. I went and cracked open a bottle, sat in my garage, cried, thought about my whole life, and was in this just unbelievable rut of, holy shit, like the one thing I thought they couldn't take away in my live shows, because every time I show up at a show, I give it my all, I pour my heart on stage for next to no money sometimes, and I'm willing to figure it out. And then losing that was probably the biggest heartbreak. I remember just everything going through my head. You know, because you get so invested in this music business, you put so much time in that you can't just shift and do something else. But yeah, man, that was like the all time low. And somewhere out of that heartbreak, I went back to being a little kid digging an outhouse hole of unrealistic things and constant letdown and getting, you know, ass whippings when I probably didn't deserve it. And I went back to the drawing board and was like, let's figure this out. And it took me a while to come out of that rut. That that was a big one. What did you do in that moment what was back to the drawing board i think i just decided to like double down on myself i said i can either throw the towel in and figure out something else but this is the only thing i know this is the one thing that gives me great joy and sometimes when i even get frustrated in songwriters rooms and recording rooms and producer contract and record stuff i need to go play a show because when I'm feeling down on that shit, if I walk on stage with a guitar, I'm immediately reminded what I love to do. I love to perform. I don't care if it's five people or 5,000 people. I know I can engage those people. And, you know, sometimes I just need a show to do it. And so after that, I, uh, I think that's right about the time I started this Mostly Stone song. I started this American Thread thing, you know, and I'd had the publishing deal. John Singer had signed me to Spirit Music Group. And was trying hard. And, and Singer has been in my corner more than anybody in this business. I'll, I'll look him in the eye and say that any day of the week. That guy has hung on and believed in me more than anybody. Me, By the way, me too. He's, he's, he's one of my people. He's Oh, yeah. And he's guy. been in rooms too where he'd call these record execs and they'd be like, I don't get it. And he'd take it more personal than I did. He's like, what do you mean you don't get it? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so he's that guy. But I had the publishing deal to hang on to. And through Spirit, I met this producer, Mike Fiorentino. And we decided to start kind of working on this project, Mostly Stoned. And somewhere in that space, I met Charlie Sheen in 2013. I Actually, you know, I lost that deal with the agency after I met Billy Gibbons and started these easy top tours. And we wrote this beard came here to party that came to the Red Sox anthem. We were on the cover of USA today. And I thought, sure as hell, here we go. We're turning again, mm. baby. We're kicking up dirt. We're going, we're moving. The machine's moving. And somewhere in there is when I lost that, that agency deal. And so I remember I met with another agency. Here's another funny story about passing on you. And then 
a year later, they're flipping out over you. And I went in and I, I told them my plan because I'd met Charlie Sheen. Billy Gibbons and I had started Whisker Bomb Pepper Sauce, but I went in and I presented to uh, UTA here in Nashville, United Talent. I said, hey, here's my plan. I'm going to have Charlie Sheen direct this video. It's probably going to get millions of views. I'm going to start this pepper sauce company with Billy Gibbons. And I had this whole thing laid out that came out of this horrible depression. I kind of went back to the drawing board and was like, I can make these things click. And I remember leaving the room and they passed on me. And I'm like, how do you pass on that? And I'm like, because I knew that I could do all these things. And a year later, we filmed Mostly Stone. Charlie Sheen wrote and directed it. became a massive press storm. Video got millions of views, millions of streams, started just kicking ass. And the hot sauce company we got on shelves in HEB, we got in Harris Teeter, we've done national TV spots and sold so much hot sauce. And Billy and I started a, a kind of a side project band called Whisker Brothers to promote it. And all these things started happening in, in that space. And I ended up signing with UTA and they're like, yeah, sorry, we thought you were full of shit. And then some of the guys in the office came in and they're like, Hey, you remember that guy that came here a year ago? Remember all that weird shit he said? He did all of that. <laughs> so then I ended up signing with those guys. During the point in your career where you hit that dip, where you were like getting rejected, even from people that you were in business with that were like sort of forcing you to fire them, you go and you make your own video and you do that with Charlie Sheen. And Charlie Sheen is, I mean, he is part of the American fabric. He's been a legendary actor, but he's also been a really controversial figure. I don't know. I have a lot of controversial friends and and a lot of sober friends as well that were like wild animals that have now been sober and figured shit out. And when we showed up and started filming this, you know, a lot of people were like, what? Why are you working with him? This and that. And I was like, hey, man, he's like reached out on a tweet about my song Hillbilly Rich and loved it. And we just found this workflow together. He was kind of ousted from Hollywood, but then had the opportunity to come back and direct. And he never directed anything at that point. The first thing he ever directed was my video. And so that was like a really cool experience working with him. And we've become really good friends. When you spend time with someone who's been through a lot of stuff, is there any point where he pulls you aside and drops some wisdom on you? Yeah, because I was getting pretty far out there on the booze for a while. You know, I kind of talked to him about that and I'd make friends and enemies alike when I was drinking because I'm just like the craziest guy in the room. But then I realized I'm also the craziest guy in the room when I'm not drinking, which I can control that a little more and not make as many enemies. So he's definitely kind of helped me with that process. Did you hit a point specifically that you were like, OK, I hit the wall? Yeah, it wasn't like one moment. It was just kind of the progression of it. I saw it getting out of control and then... My wife set me down at one point. She's like, hey, if you're going to be gone all the time on tour and then you're going to come home and you're going to bring the party home, then why don't you just stay gone? And when she said that to me, that like cut like a knife. And my kids were kind of like, oh, dad. And I was becoming a wild person that was just drunk all the time. And I made, like I said, I made a lot of friends, a lot of enemies. But, you know, that was a hard thing to break that cycle. And I'm an interesting cat in the fact that it wasn't like an AA thing for me. I had to find something else. So I went and got a CDL. So I'd learn how to drive a tour bus because I knew that would keep me out of the booze if I'm the bus driver. So I actually bought Charlie Sheen's bus from him. It was his iconic dressing room for two and a half men, a 99 Prevo that was just decked out. And he designed it to look like a bar in Hollywood that used to be there called Bar One. 
And so it looks like a bar. And that was my excuse, you know, because people are always like, they hear the stories of how wild I get when I'm drunk and I'm the life of the party. So people would always try to bring shots up to the stage. And the one thing, if I said, oh yeah, I'm trying to quit drinking, they'd be like, you're a bitch. But I was like, hey, I got my CDL and I'm a bus driver. And then they're like, oh, that's cool. There are all these different facets of Tim Montana, right? And I'm just curious, like, which is the most vulnerable? Which is the one where you have to come to terms with your own setbacks? Is that like, okay, the professional thing is a professional thing, and then the dad thing is a dad thing? Or is there one area where you're more available to yourself to go through it? Yeah, I think I'm the most tough on myself for the professional thing. And, you know, there's a lot of different things I do, but it's like the music stuff. Like, I just am the most passionate about that. And with all these other things I do, it's like I have this philosophy as long as that points back to Tim Montana, the musician. If I'm going to go race a race, like, for instance, they put together a reel, I said, put my music in it. I've written songs about racing and stuff, so put that in it. So I think definitely the professional side and, you know, nobody's perfect. The fathering thing, you know, there's been some failures and this and that and trying to raise my kids correctly is a big thing to make sure that they turn out all right. And, you know, that's something I work on every day, you know, and growing up in an abusive household, like I did, I want to make sure that I, I, they're disciplined and, but have fun, but I have to, and not that I've ever like hit a kid or anything. Right. But I like, I grew up with that shit. So I kind of have to, when I'm disciplining, make sure I'm not becoming that person that I saw as a child, you know, of like just being too hard on my kids, but I want them to have a, you know, a firm, I want them to somehow inherit my work ethic that I learned through a shitty way. I want them to learn it through a better way and a compassionate dad. And I tell them I love them constantly. I mean, that was something I never heard as a kid. My biological father died when I was young and then I had a stepdad that was terrible to us. I never heard that. So I overuse the word. I love you with my kids, you know, constantly. And the other thing I always tell them is always do your best, you know, and even if you come up short, just if you do the best you can, then you won, even if you didn't win, you know, type thing. So, well, you, your biological dad, did you have any relationship with him? Yeah, it's interesting because he abducted me at some point when I was like, I think I was four or five. So there was like a split custody thing. He was a crazy, he was a musician. That's where I get the music from. But he was a raging alcoholic, and I think I have that bone in there somewhere, right, that I was able to tame. And they left the state of Idaho. He was, like, wanted. I mean, he's someday I can make a Lifetime movie about my childhood that's pretty wild. But uh, he went to jail. Well, he abducted me because there was, like, a split custody thing. My mom begged the judge not to let Tim take me. His name was Tim. And he took me for a weekend and ended up locking me up. And I don't remember a lot about that time other than there were sailboats on the curtains and there was a lot of traffic because I think he took me to Washington, like downtown Spokane. And I do remember they'd slide pizzas under the door. <laughs> I was like, oh, yeah, being a, being a hostage isn't so bad after all. <laughs> hey, Dad, send pepperoni next time. <laughs> but it was weird hearing traffic because I was a rural kid that didn't grow up around cars and noise and stuff. And I was like, this is weird. There's no animals out there. It's cars. And he wasn't like beating me up or nothing. He just wanted to keep me from my mom. But then they came in, arrested him. Then I went to a foster care thing. And then my mom showed up with a new boyfriend. And she's like, hey, we're moving off the grid. The bad part about that was I always had this dream of when things were really bad and he's being shitty to me and my mom, the stepdad, 
I always dreamed that my real dad was going to pull down the driveway one day and kick his ass and take me and my mom somewhere amazing. Right. It was always in my brain. Like one day I'd, I'd listen for cars and anytime a car would come down the driveway, I'd be like, is it my dad? Is it Tim? Is he here? And I'll never forget the moment I was like 14 or 15 and I was lacing up my boots to get to work and things were really shitty then with the stepdad, you know, just constantly just mental abuse, physical, no, nothing crazy physical and like knocked out with sticks or anything, but he'd slap us around pretty good. And my mom walked in and she said, Hey, just nonchalant. She's like, Hey, your dad died. And I was like, huh? And even though I didn't have a relationship with him, it was the thought that that person was not coming to save me that just dude, bad, 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 bad. I was like, there's no options out. There's no way out. And even though I'm probably now I'm older, I look back, I'm probably lucky that he wasn't in my life because he was just a pretty awful person as well. But the the idea I had of who he was that I kind of made up in my mind of this hero was going to come save me from this bad situation. When that died, that was a rough couple years for me between that 14, 15 till, you know, 18 years old when I finally got out of that, that situation. But the hero, the hero in my mind died and that was rough. And it wasn't the person I missed. It was the idea of the person that I missed mm. that wasn't coming to save me. So hard because I think so much of the time it's the ideas of things. Right. That we latch on to, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about this in the context of when your wife said to you, you know, if you bring the party home, stay on the road, basically. Right. Did you feel like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm fucking that up. Was that the moment? I think it was breaking the cycle because even with the stepdad, he was a drunk too. And as I grew older, I'd hear stories about my birth father where he could walk into a bar with a saxophone and win over the entire bar. And then by the time the night was over, they'd throw him out the door and be kicking his ass and throw a saxophone out behind him. And so I kind of heard, you know, I'm like, shit, that sounds like nights I've had where I can walk into any room with a guitar and win the room over. And then I'll get hammered and do something crazy and everyone hates me, <laughs> you know, and, and half the time that would work. People loved it. You know, they didn't hate me, but then there was that half. I'm like, God, how many opportunities have I fucked up that I don't remember? I just got tired of apologizing for shit I didn't remember. But then also looking back at like that stuff, like my kids deserve better. I need to be, I'm a dad that's not here most of the time. When I'm here, I need to fucking be there mentally, emotionally, everything for them and not be the next generation of, of some crazy drunk guy that messed up opportunities, you know? So, but now like my wife too is like on me like, okay, now you're over the top workaholic, which is good. But she's like, I'm just like, a lot and I don't know how to have a true day off where I sit and enjoy things. So I'm trying to work on that personally right now of it's like, okay, I'm like over the top hangovers would slow me down sometimes. And I'd have a fun movie day with the kids. So they actually tell me sometimes like, dad, we kind of miss you being drunk because you were funny and you do cool <laughs> shit. And then we'd lay around and watch movies the next day. And we haven't watched a movie with you in like a year. And I'm like, I know <laughs> I gotta, gotta figure out something to calm me down. Cause when I wake up, I'm a hundred miles an hour from the time I wake up to the time I go to bed, you know? All of these moments of adversity seem to have almost been in some ways required for you to do all the things that you've managed to do. And Tim, thank you for all this time. I, I, I have to say, like, I'm going to get down to Nashville. I'm going to come find you with John or without John. And 
Yeah, if you're in town, and, man, uh, hit me up. I've got this big old grill deck out back. Oh, no, I'm all in it. Barbecue. All right, be good. I'll talk soon, man. All right. Thank thanks, you so guys. much. Thank you, man. So before I reflect on Tim, I do want to say something important because Tim and I were both kids that grew up with certain pressures and and then we like followed our dreams and look at us, we're a big success. But it isn't that way for everybody. And when I say that, that's a Captain Obvious statement, except I'm talking about statistically. If you're listening to this and you want to build a career in music, I'm going to give you news that kind of sucks. You ready? You're going to fail. Statistically speaking, not only is failure not an option, it's mandatory. So do you keep going? And that leads to what I think is an artist's obligation, which is be honest. Create music that fucking hits from the heart and you will have a better chance that if you fail, which the likelihood is you will, you won't feel like shit about what you created because you weren't creating to try to please a gatekeeper or a trend. And if you do get lucky and you do have success, you know it belongs to you, that it's honest and that it can last. And when I look at Tim Montana and I look at his whole story, I'm looking at a guy who knows that failure, not only is it part of the journey, but that's where all of his like extra superpowers are born every time. An abusive stepfather, being rejected by every record company in Nashville more than once, and yet he's still going. It's almost like those moments are the moments that put fuel in the tank. That to me is his success. When I hear someone who doesn't give a shit if the camera's on or not, I'm just a work in progress and making it, I gotta high five that dude. Yeah, I Fucked That Up is an Interval Presents original production from Silver Sound. Produced by Reed Adler and Jesse Ash. From Interval Presents, executive producers Alan Coy and Jake Kleinberg. Executive producers from Silver Sound are Corey Choi and Reed Adler. Story producer Jesse Ash. Senior producers Hunt Beatty and Rebecca Halperin. Sound, edit, design, and mix by Luke Allen. Original music by Killy Idol. Special thanks to Director of Operations Sarah Yu, Senior Director of Digital Strategy and Business Development Sheffy Ellensweig, and Director of Marketing Samara Still. I'm your host, Billy Mann. Make sure to follow Yeah, I Fucked That Up and listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. 